the title is The Worst Moment. Every, every human being has a, a lot of failures. I don't know about you, but I'm really easily, I can, I can dredge up stuff from like when I was 10 or 11 years old and regret it. Stuff I wish I hadn't done, you know. Um, and I, I, it doesn't take long to be really depressed about all the things I regret. And so many things that, you know, you can't undo it. It's there. It's there. Now, imagine if you're Peter. Uh, by the way, this book, Mark, uh, it's written by a guy named John Mark, who he knew something about failure himself, by the way. He knew something about his worst moment. But, this, but he was super close with Peter. Uh, they worked hand in hand. He was, he was like Peter's intern, but it wasn't just a summer. He was like, they were like connected at the hip for a long time. He would travel with Peter. Every time Peter preached, Mark, John, Mark, would be there to, and sometimes he'd translate it because Peter would be speaking some language speculation. I don't know which language that would be. Possibly Aramaic. Um, and then uh, John Mark would be the translator. That's what he's called in church history, the translator of Peter. So here's my point real quickly. Peter has a huge effect. He has so much power and control over what Mark would put in his book. And, and Mark faithfully records what? Failures, huge failures of Peter. And today is, I, I, I'm calling it the worst moment. And, you know, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Um, when, you know, the thing is when, when the trumpet calls, those who believe in Christ will be taken up and they'll be in heaven. When the roll is called up, Yonder, what happens to the hot dog? That's a great old joke, but didn't you know? <laughs> but seriously, it's going to be a fantastic moment. And when we're up there, okay, saved by grace in Jesus Christ, and Peter's there with him, we'll have to say, Peter, uh, which was the worst moment? As we were looking through your history, we realized there were quite a few to choose from. <laughs> I mean, one time, it's recorded in the, in this book that he had so much influence on. I mean, like, if you had an influence on a book, wouldn't you try to hide some of the embarrassing moments? You and I have the privilege of hiding those embarrassing moments. No one's writing a gospel where the bigger figure is me. You know, hallelujah. <laughs> but for Peter, uh, let, you know, one time Jesus said, listen, Peter, I'm going to... I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to arrest it, I'm going to be treated badly, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and he says, no, Jesus, you're not doing that. And remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. He said that to Peter. I mean, that could have been the worst moment, you know. Uh, another time, it's probably not that bad, but he was, uh, he, they were in a boat, it was a huge storm, and Jesus comes, remember, walking out on the water, out there, and Peter sees him, and he says something like, Lord, if that's really you, call me to come walk on the water with you. And he goes out and takes a few steps, and then suddenly realizes, hey, I'm walking on water. This is insane. And, and he starts to sink. 
and he cries out, Jesus, save me. You know, that, that's actually not that embarrassing, but, you know, it's borderline embarrassing. But I think it's probably fair to say that this is one of the worst moments in Peter's life. He has, he has several that were embarrassing. I'm sure that, you know, on earth he would have regretted all these things. I don't think in heaven we sit around and regret stuff. We'll be saying, whoa, I'm saved by grace. You know, God washed me. And you know what? We just sang, holy, you are holy. La, 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 beautiful song. What we're saying is, God, you're perfect. I'm really not. <laughs> you're perfect. You saved me by your power, your grace, and no regrets because I'm washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. So that's the future. But, but here and now, this has got to be the worst moment. And there's so much to think about with this. It, it's a wonderful marvel. It's the truth of God that he records one of his most important leaders being such a miserable failure uh, in, in, the, in the testing, in the crucible. Uh, it's a, he gives us this example of failure. So we're going to be talking about this. First of all, let's just look again at, at what the text actually says. Um, we're in Mark 14, as it says. And we're actually, this is the last part of Mark 14. It's been a, a beautiful journey. I've, I've absolutely loved this journey in Mark 14. Um, the very first part of it, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard. So let's just pause there. That's the setting. Peter's below. It refers to Jesus. Jesus is probably, in other words, the, the contrast is Jesus is on the second floor they actually called this the high priest's palace, I've discovered. It was a really nice big house uh, there in, in Jerusalem. And Jesus has been shining like the light he is. Gorgeous, beautiful thing. Uh, look at uh, verse 61. Let your eyes travel up the page. 1461. Actually, let's go ahead and read 60. And the, the high priest stood up in the midst. He, Remember, this is the most powerful man in Israel. Uh, you know, he's under the Romans, but in terms of Jewish government and religious authority, this is it. He's the high priest. And he stands up. And it says, in the midst, and asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Uh, that was actually prophesied. It said he would be like a lamb going to the slaughter quietly. I've never been a place where they slaughter lambs, but the point is they, the sheep don't know what's going to happen. You know, uh, I'm just going to walk down this aisle. It looks fine with me, <laughs> but they're going to be slaughtered. So they're, but they're quiet. They go down that that row to their slaughter. And that's the way Jesus went, purposefully. He's not fighting, kicking, and screaming. He's completely submitted to God. See verse 61. And he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? Now, remember, there's a lot in that. That means, uh, in Hebrew, that word is Messiah. And the Jews were looking for the Savior, 
the one who would deliver them, the Messiah. Uh, The word actually means to be chosen, to be anointed, to be anointed by God for a special task. And they had in the Holy Scripture a particular high Messiah. The kings were all anointed, and they were sort of like small m Messiah, but they, they knew it all pointed toward one massive, you know, the, you know, epic, the Messiah. And that's what this high priest asked him. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And, and that's just a way of saying in, in, in their Hebrew mind, they never like to say the word God. In fact, honestly, if you look at the Jewish literature, you know, faithful Jewish literature today, they come to the, the word God in English, they spell it G blank D. They don't even spell out the word God. And they certainly would never say the name of God in the Hebrew Bible is Yahweh, and they would never ever say that. They would say Lord, um, and that way they would probably spell L-R-D or something like that. But that's what's going on here. The high priest says, are you the son of God? Are you the son of the blessed? So there's this beautiful moment. What will Jesus say? Will he crumble? Will he deny? Will he protect himself? Of course not. He says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. That's another way of saying the right hand of God. Again, it's that same tradition of not saying the name of God specifically. You're going to see me, the son of man. You know, that's kind of a beautiful thing right there because he's the son of God, but he's the son of man too. He's our brother. That's how we can relate to him. Uh, he's, he is one of us, and he's also one with God. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the huge confession of Jesus. It's marvelous. And and it's kind of like this. He's standing strong there. He's speaking truth to power. He's not afraid of the implications. if, If he says this, he knows that this is a, as far as they're concerned, a capital offense. You know what a capital offense is? It's like murder. It's a, uh, a law that says you can lose your head. So that's what capital means. You can lose your head over this offense. It's a capital offense. It's worthy of the death penalty. And, and Jesus knows that this is that. So uh, look at what the high priest said. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. But Jesus stood strong like a solid, well-built rock wall. And then it's the transition is verse 66, sort of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, down below in the courtyard, a, a powerless slave. A, a young lady who is a servant slave comes to Peter. She has no power. She's not the high priest. She has no standing. She can't hurt you. And what does she do? She comes to him and says, seeing Peter warming himself. 
Peter's kind of into you know, his own personal comfort here. As long as I'm happy, I'm warming myself by the fire. She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Nazareth is a place, the town where Jesus grew up. So he got to be called the Nazarene. He wasn't born there. He was born down in Bethlehem. He's more Judean than Nazarene by birth. It's like I was born in California and I used to live in Ohio. So I really don't want you to call me a Buckeye. You know, it was great. I lived there four years, fantastic. But I'm really not from Ohio. Uh, but Jesus lives with misunderstanding. Essentially, uh, he grew up there, and yeah, he was the Nazarene. Are you with you? Also, or with the Nazarene. So, see, my point is this. The contrast is this. This is Peter. You know, this was Jesus. Stand strong, like a solid rock wall. The Son of Man. The Son of God. The Great I Am. He bears witness to the truth. And in that trial, by the way, they were using all kinds of charcoal chalk drawings and false... They were using false witnesses to try to trip him up, and none of their false witnesses agreed with each other. They had they had two and a half years to get their act together. They're the most powerful men in Israel. They, you know, you can you can hire the best lawyers. These were the best lawyers. This is the best they can do, and it just it's made mockery of their best ever. You can't buy the conviction. The cool thing is, though, it's the truthful confession of Jesus that ends up getting the conviction of that he is worthy of death. So that's what this is, this strong wall. And this is Peter, you know, falling flat on his face in the, to this young girl when he really didn't need to do that at all. He's warming himself by the fire and he caves in. Let's read it again, uh, verse 67. Oh, we already read over that. You're in Nazarene, verse 68. But he denied it, saying, And listen to what he said. I neither know nor understand what you mean. Okay, Peter, please. That's pitiful. That is a pitiful thing to say. Uh, remember just earlier, look up, let your eyes travel back up into chapter 14, verse 31. This is the word. This is the bravado of Peter. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. <laughs> all the disciples said that same thing. But that's his exact bravado. And so in his own strength, he's going out to face this battle. I can do this. I can fight this thing. I don't need help. I don't need God's help. I'm strong enough. Oh, Peter, 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 no. You're going to collapse badly. The, fa the fall, and great was the fall thereof, Edgar Allan Poe said. I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gate. Yeah, great way. A little, you know, okay, I'm going to give up the... Warmth of the fire for a few minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away from the fire. It's a little too hot here. A little more dangerous than I expected. 
what does it say next? And the rooster crowed. I, I wish I'd had a sound effect here, but I don't. So just imagine a rooster <laughs> crowing. Uh, why is that important? Well, of course, you all know the story. Um, look back up, let your eyes travel up to verse 30 of chapter 14. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. This is with, with this hours ago, just hours ago. And Jesus had taken kind of an oath formula when he says, truly, I say to you, this is like, listen to this, there's the word. And then the rooster crows. I think it's like an early warning system. You know, the, the bell went off. There was an early warning there. Pay attention to the early warning, Peter. Please, he's giving you a chance. He's saying there's going to be two. <laughs> Imagine that's a very well-disciplined rooster. As I know roosters, once they start, there's no stopping them, right? I mean, like, oh, shut the heck up, you know. <laughs> but uh, this rooster had it all timed out in the sovereignty of God. God controls the roosters, dearest friends. He controls everything. Um, but there's a powerful principle here, powerful principle that you and I need to learn. That is early warning. God gives us early warnings. And part of the way to succeed is to heed the warning. It's total, you know, un impossible speculation, of course. But if Peter had just said, oh, wait a minute, this is wrong. I got to come to my senses. I got to start doing what God wants me to do. I heard the warning. The rooster has crowed once, crowed once, but he doesn't. He doesn't hear. He doesn't hear. So the next thing we read, um, verse sixty-nine, and the servant girl. You know, here she is, that big, strong servant girl, <laughs> that scary one. <laughs> the least powerful individual in the whole group. <laughs> you could easily just sort of not answer her. You could easily just blow her off. But she's that one that comes. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders. Now, so the, the language here is like, she's like saying this a whole bunch to all the people standing around. She began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Peter was born in Galilee, up north near Nazareth, and he probably had a, an accent. They knew somehow he was Galilean, probably his clothing, all kinds of things, gave him away. So this is the third third opportunity for him. Three times he's been challenged. Twice he has denied. He's heard the rooster once. But look at this. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Now, this isn't like a series of four-letter words, by the way. Like the atmosphere turned blue as Peter let off a series of four-letter words. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is he went into this, like, it's a very intricate pattern of basically if, if what you're saying is true, 
may I be cut in pieces and fed to the dogs. It's an official sort of curse on me. And it's like the highest form of uh, emphasis you can make. This is Peter, this big, strong guy who had just said, I will never deny you. I'd rather die. And now he's denying him three times. He swears, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Wow. What has he done? Oh, Peter, what have you done? You've denied the Lord Jesus Christ, the one you profess to love. You've denied him. Is a full-out denial of Jesus. So look, look at the rest of what it says. Um, and immediately, the roaster, roaster. <laughs> I'm thinking of lunch. <laughs> the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered. Now he remembers. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter. The worst moment. The thing he'll never ever forget, except, like I said, by grace in God's heaven, we don't forget our failures. We don't live with regret for eternity. There's someday there'll be a switch to turn it off, you know. The switches, Jesus paid it all, and it's all under the blood. Now, let's, I, I want to ask, what do we learn from this in our moments together uh, as we look at this? What does this actually teach us? And there's a lot. There's a lot here. One, one important thing is this, that this is prophecy fulfilled. You know, the glass is full and overflowing. It's fulfilled. Jesus said this specifically, literally. A rooster is going to crow two times, and you're going to deny me three times. And to a T, it happened exactly the way Jesus predicted. Earlier, as I said, uh, at least three times, earlier on, like a year ago it started, or a year and a half ago, Jesus specifically told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beat up horribly, I'm going to be crucified on a Roman cross. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. <laughs> and and they they say, every time they don't get it, they they so don't get it. One of the times, immediately after that, it's recorded in Mark, James and uh, John, like his two, they're Peter, James, and John were the inner circle of with Jesus. They were like the closest. They know Jesus more than anybody else. And James and John and their mommy come to, come to Jesus right then and say, uh, when your kingdom comes, can James and John, can we sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand? Like, we want to be right, right there with you in, in your power, oh Lord Jesus. Like, oh, please, talk about regretting things you said. <laughs> Those guys uh, on earth, that, that, was a, that was their worst moment, I would imagine. So what I'm saying is this. Jesus had predicted this specifically. He predicted his death. He predicts the denial. He predicted that all of them will deny him. Um, see, right up in, again, let your eyes travel up 
it says in verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is just a little microcosm of the whole Bible. God's prophecies come true. They always come true, and they come true exactly the way he predicts them to come true. You know, so trust the Bible. When, it's, when it tells you something, it's going to happen. Even if it seems like it's taking forever, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Look at uh, chapter 13. Let's go. Let's depart chapter 14 for a second. Uh, and look at chapter 13, verse 31. And this is the word of Jesus. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. This is powerful. Jesus says the whole heaven and earth will pass away. By the way, the entire earth and the heavens will be destroyed. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be radically, amazingly different. Uh, the Bible describes this. Not today's message. But there it is. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. But, but the words of Jesus will not pass away. Uh, we said this during our worship time and, and in our prayer this morning. The Bible is the word of God. It is true. Let us not doubt it. Let us remember it. Uh, let us live by it. Let us trust the word of God. This is prophecy fulfilled. But I want to face the kind of bigger issue here that I've already introduced kind of pretty, pretty well, and that is, is, is failure fatal? could have been my title as well, instead of the worst moment. Is failure fatal? And, or you could even say, corollary to that, how is failure fatal? We could answer that uh, easily, and that is that failure is fatal if, if your response to it is wrong. We know another guy who's failed in this text. His name is Judas. And it was fatal for Judas because once he failed God horribly, on a par with what Peter has done, though, he caved in emotionally and gave in to total despair and committed suicide. Uh, very horribly and, and graphically, he committed suicide. It's recorded in the Bible. So you might say, uh, I got this from my good friend Samantha Davy. That's like putting a period in the sentence. Isn't, that's it. That's no, no more. I was a failure. I failed. That's it. I might as well just continue on a failure. I might as well just, I'll never succeed. I'll never overcome this. I'll never amount to anything. I might as well just continue on in that perhaps pleasurable thing even though it is wrong and is a waste of my human life and a waste of my God-given abilities, uh, that's a way to say, that's it, I failed. The other option is to put a, a, a semicolon, which you put on in, uh, in writing. It's not the end of the sentence. We're going to write more there. There's going to be more there. And so for Peter, there's more there. Hallelujah. So what do we learn? And uh, uh, this is my message. I'm going to flesh it out. Uh, quickly, first of all, sorrow over sin is good if it moves you to repentance. Did you see at the very end of the text? I don't think I even reread it yet. The very end of our text, it says, 
and he broke down and wept. I think I did read that, but I'll read it again. He broke down. The language here is the, the word for broke down. It means to, to th- throw onto. It's like the, the weeping was thrown onto him. He was overcome with what he had done in that instant. And he, he broke down and started weeping. It's the same word that when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and a huge windstorm broke out, and it says the waves were being thrown onto the boat. They were getting overwhelmed by the waves, and the, the, the boat was nearly, nearly sinking. So it's that same word. That's what happened to him. And it, it, by God's grace, in this moment, he feels horrible. And he's weeping for what he did. So we're going to open that up a little bit. Secondly, anyone can be restored if they repent. Anyone, anyone, even Peter, even the high priest could have been, uh, etc. Anyone can be. That's the gospel because we're all sinners. Your sin is bad. It's, my sin is bad. They're all overwhelmingly bad. They're, any sin is worth the full-on punishment of hell. Uh, and so we, we're all in the same boat, and we, any of us can be forgiven if we turn to Christ. Uh, and I, I notice this too. Notice that this incident is never mentioned again. It's recorded faithfully in all four of the Gospels, dear friends, but it's never brought up. Peter never brings it up in his writings. We have no record of Jesus having a conversation with Peter about this incident. We have an awesome record where Jesus goes out of his way to restore Peter with those three questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, you had three chances to deny me. Now you have three chances to affirm that you love me. And then he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he becomes the spokesman for for God all in a period of a few days. He didn't even have to go through 18 months of rehab or anything like that. Uh, He's restored. I think it's pretty cool that this incident is never mentioned again. Hallelujah. You know, that's the gospel. You're washed. You're clean. We don't have to go over that again. And then finally, uh, I want to look at this. No one is saved by their own power and performance. Peter's a shining example of that. So first, let's just look at this. This is so important. The whole sorrow thing. Sorrow that leads to repentance. You know, we ought to feel sorry uh, for our sins. It's a blessing when we do. It's a grace of God. I once once attended a lecture uh, by a a leprosy doctor who had spent a lot of time working with and researching Hansen's disease, it's called, or we call it leprosy. And what he said is the bad thing about leprosy is sometimes you see them in the third world, they're missing fingers and toes and other things. The bad thing is what happens is you lose the sensation of pain. And so you're like, it's kind of gross, but let's say you're cooking in the kitchen and your finger's like right next to the burner and you just get this massive burn because you didn't feel it. It's the worst thing, you see. And so that's why you get a bad infection and you might lose a part of your finger. Pain is a blessing. It shows us that something bad has happened here. 
You know, why do I feel bad? Because what you did was bad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wrong, Peter. What you did was very wrong. You, were, you collapsed like a, a brick wall in a bad earthquake. Then the bad earthquake was some young slave girl who said, don't you know Jesus? <laughs> Didn't take much of an earthquake. It was a point one Richter earthquake, and Peter collapsed. Uh, yes, that's the way it was for him. But he's sorry, 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 sorry. If you're, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians 7, 10. This is a key verse, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. And it runs like this. For, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now, what that means, repentance means a desire for, for real change and a commitment to doing what it takes to change. That, that's the whole, that's what repentance is. It's not like, oh, yeah, I feel sorry for it. I feel sorry I was caught. No, this is, I'm really sorry for that bad thing I did. And I want to change. I, I want to get that behind me completely. And it, so godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It's that word, regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. If you're just worldly sorrow, then you're sorry for yourself. You're sorry you got caught. And maybe you'll seek to self-medicate, escape, do it again, give up on yourself, uh, all kinds of deathly activities. So it's good to have sorrow. And there's a lot in this. I want to open up just a little bit. Um, let, me, uh, let me read... Uh, Let me read this one. This is Isaiah 41, 14. I put this up on my Facebook page a few weeks ago because I was thinking about it. Isaiah 41, 14. Listen to this. This is the word of God. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. What? God, I mean, you're calling me a worm? (laughs) That that doesn't seem nice, you know? Can't you come up with something like, like, like maybe eagle? (laughs) <laughs> or at least a pigeon, you know, but a, a lowly worm. Why is God saying that? Well, Jacob, the men of Israel, they had, they had denied Yahweh over and over and over again, and they felt very much like worms. And, 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 and ethically and morally, they were worms. They, they had no strength on their own. They needed supernatural intervention to make them other than worms. Uh, and that's what this, this is Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, don't fear. Yeah, you feel like a worm, Peter. By the way, you're acting like one. You know, that's why you need to repent. Fear not, don't fear. You worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. See, so, Humility and being sorry for our sin is the right start because that turns us to God who can save us, who can give us strength, who will give us the Holy Spirit and will overcome and will grow with him. Ezekiel is a rich prophet. He's also one of my grandsons, by the way, but uh, not not the same Ezekiel. (laughs) 
Ezekiel, uh, if, right? Jot down these references. This is Ezekiel 20, verses... Uh, I'm just going to cut to the chase. I don't have a lot of time. So verse 43, Ezekiel 20, 43. It says this, and, and there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. You know, Peter is sinning against Jesus, but he's defiling himself in that process. He's dirty. And, and it says, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. Now, that's a strong word, too. You will loathe yourself. Why do we go there? You know what Jesus says is, if you come to me, you have to take your cross and follow me. When you come to me, you have to die to yourself to live for me. There's, uh, we're sinners. We're re rebels against God. And there's a big, strong part of us that needs to die. My sinful desires need to die. And I need to die to them. And I have to consider myself to be dead to overcome them. And so it's, it's healthy to... I, I can hardly say it. It doesn't seem right, but it's the word of God to loathe ourselves, to hate a part of us that we have to overcome. That's the first thing in the process. Be humble and admit you have need. It's also found in Ezekiel uh, 36. I, I'm not doing justice to the context there, uh, but given the time, uh, that let me just touch on that today. So it's a part of it. That's what Peter was feeling at that moment. That's why... The sorrow crashed in on him like a huge wave. He's weeping and overcome because he's realized what he did. He has realized what he has done. And he's loathing himself and looking for grace, looking for change. So where does change come? It comes in restoration. God wants to restore us. <laughs> I mean, we don't go to loathing so that we stay there. You know, no, we go to loathing so can change. Uh, I have an old, I have a 62 Chevy pickup truck. It's unrestored. <laughs> I, I should start a GoFundMe to fix this thing, but it's uh, one of our friends in the church called it a jalopy. I thought, I love that word jalopy, and I'm proud of it. It's a jalopy. Uh, it's got rust holes all over it, but it still runs. I still use it once in a while. It's a great old truck. And this is what it could be, right? That's a 55. I have a 62. But during truck week or car week, whatever it is, I honor restoration. <laughs> now, that takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. You don't snap your finger and make that work easily, right? A lot of investment, a lot, a lot of work on all of those rust holes, all the, the shame and all the past needs to be overdone and redone that's why we're here. It's a, it's a process of restoration. The technical biblical term for that is to be sanctified, to be set apart to God, to be changed. I'm a sinner. I believe in Christ. Here's the weird thing is, immediately I'm justified before God. If I die, I go to heaven because of the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. But God leaves me here to start a process of growing so that, you know, my big position in Christ could be, my condition could kind of start to get a little bit more like that. Uh, and that's, that's where we are. And that's where Peter is for us today. This is what Jesus said. This is huge. Luke 22, 
31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know, a baker takes wheat and, you know, they kind of stir it up real strong, makes it nice and soft and consistent and makes nice fluffy, fluffy, or fluffy, whichever, uh, fluffy rolls. <laughs> I'll take two fluffy rolls, please. Um, sifting changes the consistency of, of the material, and it's violent and painful for the wheat. If you were the wheat, it'd be painful. And, and Jesus says, Satan demanded that he might sift you like wheat. And we want to say, but I told him, no, he couldn't make your life painful. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have repented again, when you've come back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you will deny three times that you know me. That's Luke 22, 31 through 33. So that's the first part, sorrow. And that's the second part, re restored. And the final part is this. It, you know, look at these guys trying to pull this airplane. It's like we want to yell, pull harder, pull faster. I'm sure if they pulled harder and faster, they'd be able to get that plane to fly, right? I don't know what they do when they run out of runway. You know, like, it's going to fly over your head like some sort of kite or something. No, right? There's, it's completely impossible. They might be able to move it, and I think they are going to be able to move it, right? But they'll never get it to fly. And I want to tell you, no one is saved by their own power and performance. I don't care who you are. Even if you had 200 men and women pulling that plane, they could not get it off the ground. There's no way. You need the jet engines. So how are we saved? We're saved by pure grace, good friends. And that's where we close today. Uh, pure grace. If you look, look at Peter's first letter. If we had time, I was going to look at that, but I'm running out of time. In his first letter, the whole first part of the first letter, he doesn't mention his failures. There's a lot of them, but he doesn't. What he mentions is, you know what? We're saved because God is good. Christ provided salvation for us and it's pure grace and we receive it with the open hands of faith. I pray that your faith will not fail, Jesus said to him. And his faith didn't fail. He received this gift of forgiveness, the washing of water and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And it's just... Glorious. That's, that's the core of our message. This is what we believe. Pure grace. Pure grace. This is the glorious uh, Yosemite, if you don't recognize it. There's a river that flows out of the valley. It's called the Merced River. And it's just, it just it's the river of flowing goodness. Delicious, pure, uh, glorious washing. And it's, you know, as it has been, that river has flowed my entire life. Probably going to dry up tomorrow, but for now, it's a great illustration of, you know, praise the Savior. The, the, from Him, all blessings flow. And that's salvation. 
Peter stands as an object lesson to that. He's not saved because he's so awesome. He's not saved because he never screwed up. He screwed up horribly. Many times over. He's saved because Jesus never screwed up. And Jesus took his sin. And Jesus is here to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Oh, I, I, let me review real quick. This is, this, what do we learn? Sorrow over sin is good. Honestly, remember the people with leprosy. Their big problem is that they don't feel pain. So be, be thankful for pain. God's work, you, use it to motivate you to figure out what's wrong, where you need to re repent. It moves you to repentance, if it moves you to repentance. Anyone can be restored. Anyone, even Peter. <laughs> uh, notice that this incident is never mentioned again. I think that's profound. It's kind of interesting. And then finally, no one is saved by their own power and performance. 